so thanks for joining us, everyone. Today is July 15th. This is the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest regions. So we broadcast every Wednesday live at 12.30 Eastern Time, 11.30 Central Time. We try to kind of fit it into your lunch break. Um, and we've been doing this since May and we'll go through September. If you need CCA credits for today, um, if you're a certified crop advisor, you can put your name in the chat box and your email and we can send you a code so that you can get those credits. So I'm one of your co-hosts today. My name is Natalie Hoytel from the University of Minnesota Extension. And my co-host today is Ben Phillips from Michigan State Extension. And then we've got Mike Rinke behind the scenes from Michigan State um, as our Zoom engineer. So Ben, do you wanna introduce our topics and guests for today? Yeah, great. Uh, hey everybody. Today's episode is all about irrigation setups for vegetables. We have, uh, we have two guests today, Ron Goldie from MSU and Lyndon Kelly, also from MSU. Lyndon's got this interesting position in that he's co-appointed by MSU and Purdue. Um, both of these guys have spent a lot of time dealing with irrigation. Ron has spent basically three careers working in different types of crops, strawberries, orchards, most recently vegetables. Uh, has a lot of experience with uh, drip systems. Um, and Lyndon is got a lot more experience on the overhead irrigation side of things, broad acre style irrigation, uh, and a lot on regulation as well, uh, which may be more specific to Indiana and Michigan, um, but quite a lot of background on that. So um, as we go about today, we've got a few questions that we've kind of loaded up and some uh, discussion that we can have, but if you've got questions for Ron and Lyndon, please put them in the Q&A box, uh, and you can also upvote questions that other people may have submitted, uh, and then both of our guests will tackle those on the back half of the program. So I, let's get started then. Let's get started. So uh, this question, all these questions are going to be going to both of you guys, and I'll just suggest that one of you take the first attempt at, at, at you know, an answer to it. So Let's start with the source, uh, the source of water. So what, what kind of equipment do you think is needed for drawing off of surface water versus a groundwater well? And why don't, uh, why don't I start with Lyndon on that? Well, Ben, um, when I guess first said, uh, in a lot of situations, we try to avoid surface water for vegetable production because of some of the issues that are there. Um, some of our disease pathologists will tell me right off that I spend way too much time talking to people about how to treat surface water so that it's safe to use for cooling purposes or safe to use prior to harvest, those types of things. But um, in a lot of situations, surface water is the only option. Um, when we're talking about field scale, 500 gallons a minute or more in that range, um, we need to have a surface pump that's going to suck um, water from that surface. Usually that placement needs to be within eight foot of the surface of the water. Um, that's usually where most pumps are fairly efficient at sucking the water out of the pond or stream. Uh, we need to have a site that um, is clean enough so that we aren't sucking up a lot of debris or mud from the bottom. Um, and if we do have a lot of algae, we probably need a floating screen or a rotary screen to keep it clean or to, to keep uh, obstructions from coming in. Um, it's a little bit different than um, trickle irrigation because um, most of our sprinklers can take algae and those types of things and shoot them right out the far end. 
Um, so we, we basically screen ahead of the pump. Um, that ends up being most of the equipment that we see coming out of surface water. When we talk to people about surface water, we also make sure we, uh, if you're looking at a new installation, make sure to look at it during August of the year in a dry year, because when you need the water the most will be the least amount of water in that stream or ditch or uh, pond. Um, so that's uh, part of the, of the issue too. That's kind of funny. I, when I recommend to new growers who are asking me about a certain piece of land and where they should put their vegetables, I, I, I ask them to do a similar exercise to look, um, to check out the fields in the early spring when the ground isn't quite thawed yet but after a rain and see where everything's pooling, don't grow them there. Uh, <laughs> similar exercise. Uh, anything else you'd like to add on that, uh, Lyndon? No, I wanna see how Ron answers that question. <laughs> okay, th thanks for passing that off, Lyndon. Um, for drip irrigation, you can use both sources of surface water or groundwater. Of course, like Lyndon says, the surface water is gonna be much dirtier than what the, the groundwater is going to be. Um, and so you need a different filtering system uh, because even uh, groundwater is, is, needs to be filtered for a drip system because when you're sending that water through just a little opening in that drip tube or uh, drip tape or whatever it is you're sending it through, uh, you need to have really clean water or else you're going to plug that system up. And so uh, if you're using surface water, then you're usually relying on a big sand filter uh, that really gets a lot of the material out of it. The food safety is still an issue, but not as much because you're not putting water over the top of everything. You're putting it underneath uh, where the roots are. And so if it's tomatoes, you're not getting it on the tomato fruit uh, or peppers. You're getting it underneath the, the plant. So it's not that big a concern. Uh, the nice thing, though, about groundwater is that in most places you can find it anywhere. You may have to go deeper for it, but you can find it. You don't have to be near a, a, a source of a stream or a pond or whatever that you're working with. Um, the other thing about that's nice about drip is that you don't need hundreds of gallons a minute uh, like you do for an overhead center pivot type system. You can get by with 50 gallons a minute or 20 gallons a minute if you're on a smaller scale uh, and you just zone off your zones. And so that's the nice thing about a drip system is that no, uses nowhere near the amount of water that an overhead does. I'd like to ask a follow-up to either one of you. Um, if installing a new well, what, talking groundwater here, uh, what, what are some of the key figures that a grower should, should have at hand for knowing how to appropriately size some of that equipment? You, you had mentioned 20 to 50 gallon per minute. That could be one of those things they should have on hand. Uh, what else might they need? Uh, depth, you know, how deep is, your, is the water source? Uh, you know, there are some places where you may have to go down 200 feet or more. Other places in Michigan, you go down 50 feet and you get enough. Uh, Lyndon probably has more experience than that. Lyndon, what do you have to say? Well, and, and you know, when we look at Indiana, about half the state, you're not going to find sources of water in that 500-gallon-a-minute range. You probably can find 50 gallons a minute. I believe Wisconsin's the same way, Natalie, right? In some areas, there's water clearly available. In other areas, it's really pretty hard to get to in, in 500 gallon a minute quantities. Um, I think, think the other thing is that we need to talk about the acres. Our standard recommendation for irrigation um, sizing is five gallons per minute capacity per acre that's going to be irrigated. 
So if I have a 100 acre field and I plan on irrigating all of that from overhead irrigation, we're going to want uh, 500 gallons a minute capacity. That's enough to replace um, our estimated ET, evapotranspiration, for a, most of our summer days. But almost every summer, we hit something in that range of a quarter of an inch a day, 0.25 inches, or a quarter of an inch a day, or an inch every four days. At five gallons a minute, you can apply um, one inch every four days on 100 acres, pumping 100% of the time. Um, so that's sort of where we, we, we see most people. It's hard to justify um, extremely hot, bigger uh, wells or uh, surface water withdrawals. Um, below that, you have to do some um, planting crops to strategically so that their peak water uses at different times, or you plant part of your field to a crop you don't intend to irrigate um, to make up the difference. Thanks, guys. Those were some great figures. The five gallons per minute capacity per acre. That's a good one to keep in a back pocket right there. That's, that's for overhead, though, uh, Lyndon, you're thinking? And for, uh, for, yep, that's for overhead, and that's assuming that the whole landscape is going to be irrigated. So when we're doing overhead irrigation, we're irrigating every inch. We can't, we've got to apply water to the center of the row, whether there's roots there or not. So that number doesn't really change. Even if my plants are only using half of the landscape, half of the uh, area, I still got to apply the water. So that's sort of the, the challenge there. There are excellent resources both in Michigan and Indiana to help you evaluate whether there's a chance of getting that kind of quantity of water uh, from your area. Um, that's the Indiana DNR um, or um, in Michigan, it's uh, large water use at EPA. Um, I'm assuming Wisconsin, some of the other states have something there too that um, just helps like you look at GIS maps that kind of show right. you your resources right. by region? Right. Okay. But um, in general, we are extremely well blessed right along this Indiana uh, toll road corridor. You go two counties north and two counties south of that Indiana-Michigan line, and you're probably going to be able to find water um, sometimes a little harder than others. Um, we we sort of have it as a, if you grew up in that area, it's a given. We're going to be able to find water. If I go to central Indiana, it's the other way around. I may have a hard time finding enough water for the house, let alone um, actually an irrigation system. Mm. For, for a drip system, it, you can go at it two ways. You can say, okay, this is my well and this that I have, and this is the size of that well. I can put out 50 gallons a minute out of that well. So... I know that I'm going to, going to have to limit my zones to 50 gallons a minute. Or you can go the other way. If you're just going to establish a well, you can go, okay, I want my zones to be, you know, I need 80 gallons a minute for this zone. So that means I need to have a 80 plus gallon a minute well. So I, that's what I need to, to work towards to you know, gauge the size of my well that I need to put down. So you can start from the beginning and work to the end, or you can start at the end and work back to the beginning, uh, just depending on what's there. Uh, the other thing that you have to worry about with drip irrigation is uh, the quality of the water, not, not from a, maybe from a, a particulate standpoint, but from what's dissolved in it, you know, how much calcium is in that water, how much iron might be in that water, uh, because you can get some calcium precipitate and iron precipitate into the uh, drip tape and plug it up. So you'll have to do some maintenance uh, to 
you know, acid injection through there to unplug the, the lines every now and then, or in a case of iron, you might have to put it into a pond, let the iron precipitate out in that pond, and then suck off the pond. Uh, so that's a couple ways around that. Okay, so shifting gears a little bit, um, one of the questions we wanted to ask was more about consistency and maintaining consistency. So actually in Minnesota, we often have too much water. <laughs> and so we're not irrigating all the time necessarily. Um, but July is kind of this period where we start to see really hot periods, um, kind of interspersed with really heavy rains. And so I wanted to ask, do you have recommendations for soil moisture monitoring systems, whether those are meters, um, or like even automatic systems that kick in once your moisture gets below a certain level, um, or just practices that growers can use to help them maintain fairly consistent moisture in soil. There are a number of different systems that you can work on, work off of, and, and for all of those things that you mentioned, you, know, you can you know the the oldest system is probably the checkbook type method. You know, rain gauge at each site, and then how much water goes in, and then have access to how much water. It goes out through evapotranspiration, and most uh, states have a system where you can tap into that system and know what the evapotranspiration rates are for that day. Uh, you're probably a little higher in Minnesota than we are here because you've got a little bit drier climate, uh, humidity-wise, also uh, hotter temperatures. So you're probably at peak rates, you're up to 0.3 inches a day. Uh, we're, we're at about quarter inches a day. It's probably a peak rate for us. Uh, so that's the, just the checkbook method, water in, water out. Then there are all, all kinds of other systems where you can get to measure soil moisture uh, through various means, uh, the gypsum blocks, the soil capacitance, and then you can hook those up to a system that will automatically turn on and off uh, at the settings that you put, put in. Um, so those, those are all there. You know, the, the more you want, the more expensive it is. Okay, so it uh, just depends on how much money you want to spend. Lyndon? Well, I got to unmute myself. Um, there are yeah, lots of systems. Um, we're actually a little bit in the field side, a little bit past the heyday. Um, five years ago, I had way more companies offering soil moisture monitoring equipment than we do now. Um, and that's a little bit of a word of warning. You don't want to buy into something that ends up sitting in the end the corner of the garage. But we've had for 30 years the... Um, the gypsum blocks that um, Ron's talking about, and it's a pretty easy concept. You're passing electrical current through a wire um, with a gypsum uh, material in it, and you place that in the soil at the depth that you want to know the moisture. The more water that absorbs into the gypsum block, the easier the electricity passes through. Um, and then, of course, as it dries out, it's harder for the electricity to pass through. It's going to be different from each soil, the threshold that you would come to. But what I found is producers putting in a very simple system like that and monitoring it, um, they learn pretty quick when it's too dry. They'll say, you know, hey, I, I had problems with the well the other day and things were too dry. I got readings down to 33. I never want to be there again. And so from there on in, when they get nervous every time the meter reading um, you know, exceeds 20 or so, then they want to go higher um, and, and water more often. We're usually putting those sensors in at uh, the top third, the middle third, and the bottom third of the root zone. Um, expect the water um, 
reading level, whatever meter you're, you're using, to go up and down in the top third uh, very rapidly, um, to see some movement in that uh, middle third. And in general, we sort of want to do our irrigation to manage that top two thirds of the root zone. That bottom third, um, ideally, would be drying out as we go. And then when we have a big uh, a rainfall or something, it will re-wet that. Uh, but we don't want to see a lot of water passing through the top two thirds of the soil into that bottom third because then we're just uh, at high potential for wasting water and moving nutrients. There, there's a pretty good paper on soil moisture monitoring at the website that uh, MSU Extension has for both the Ag Engineering Department and the Extension Department. I'll, I'll, I'll be sharing that, uh, Lyndon, in the, in the podcast description. Uh, later on. Uh, thanks for mentioning it. Um, I had a quick question on those gypsum blocks, and that might be what Ron's preparing to show us um, for the folks joining us live. Is that also called an aerometer, or is that one of the brand names? It's aerometer. Uh, no, that those work off of soil tension. Mm -hmm. uh, it has a, a porous tip on, on the end of it with a gauge at the top, and what, what, what it's doing is that, and you have a liquid filled center, and what it's doing is it's pulling the soil, it's trying to pull the moisture through that porous tip, and it gives you a pressure reading on that gauge. And so it tells you how much pressure is being applied to pulling that, or how much suction, I guess, is being applied to pull that out. Right, it's like mimicking a plant root, I think is how that Right, is. yeah. And so you, you don't want it to drop below a certain setting. Uh, and you can get those that you can automate those too, where the, the needle goes past a, a point. Uh, but what happens sometimes is that that needle can go past the point so fast that it doesn't kick it on. And so I've found those not to be that great. But what, I sh what I'm showing you here is that this is a pretty cheap, crude way of knowing how your water moves through your soil. What you I have is just the words to describe what you're showing us. Yeah, I will. Uh, okay. This is just a piece of PVC pipe. This is half inch PVC pipe uh, that has number 10. This is number 14, it looks like. Uh, number 14, number 10 wire where the, the tips are bared at both ends. And so you put this in the, in the ground and you know, keep this above ground. And you might have to put a pilot hole down so that you don't, you don't want these to bend together and touch, okay? So you might have to put a pilot hole in to keep them from bending together. You've got uh, two wires snipped yeah, to almost the same length as the pipe, except they stick yep. out on either end. Yeah, this is 18 inches, I believe. And so if I put it down this far, I'm putting it probably about 20 inches into the ground. Mm -hmm. And so what you do then is you just take a simple ohm meter with the alligator clips on it. And before you start your irrigation, you clip these alligator clips to the, the exposed wires here, the exposed leads, get a reading, turn your irrigation on, and as the waterfront moves down the soil, uh, you get set it, you, you turn it on at a certain time, two o'clock. Okay, you turn it on at two o'clock and, and turn your irrigation on, and the water moves through the soil, get your initial reading, and when the water reaches the bottom of this tube, wet soil conducts a lot more electricity than what dry soil does. So the numbers on your ohm meter, your resistance meter, will just go through the floor as soon as that uh, waterfront reaches the tips of these. And so what that tells you is that if all I want to do is fill the top 18 inches of my soil, you know, if it takes from 2 to 250 
to, to fill this top 18 inches, then I run my irrigation 50 minutes. But if it takes from 2 to 3.30, then I run my irrigation for 90 minutes to get to get this amount wet that I want wetted. Okay. So that's a tool that you can use to sort of calibrate your timing. Maybe right. Maybe you do that a couple times a year, not not for every irrigation, right? Is that what you? Is well, that how you? No, use not every. It? Basically, you, you just do it once, and then you know how because your soil is going to always react the same to water, yeah. and so you know how quickly that that water front moves through that amount of soil. Now, 18 inches is quite a bit. I would probably you know 14, 16 inches is probably enough because most of our Vegetables don't go down much deeper than that. So that tells you how long to irrigate uh, your, your system, but how often is another question. And a system that I use and, and have used quite successfully uh, with some growers is this Diviner 2000 system, which is a Centec uh, corporation. What you do with that is you establish some PVC tubes, monitoring stations, out in the field, and let me back up here a little bit, and you have this probe that you put down through the tube, it sends out an electrical signal into the soil, and, and the probe reads the bounce back that's recorded on the data logger, and wet soils will have a different bounce back than what dry soils do, as clay soils will have a different reading than what sand soils do. And so I've actually have, oh, 80 some sites this year on that uh, growers paying me anywhere from 80 to $160 a site, $80 if it's a short season crop like squash or cucumbers, 160 if it's a long season crop like corn, apples, um, tomatoes, peppers, those, that kind of thing. So it's a service, a pay for service thing that I have um, done probably for 20 years now. I started with a grant and it was free when the grant was up and it's no longer free, some of the growers on it said, we'll pay for this. And so that's been going on for 20 years. Yeah, that's an interesting system. I've used that before. It, yeah, you have to drive that PVC tube down and it's uh, basically going to be there the whole season. And then you just you just put that probe in and out and it takes the reading. It's a real bear getting those tubes back out again, depending on the soil. Uh, well, <laughs> what you need to do is you need to drill a hole through the top of the tube you know, all, for, through both sides, then you can stick a piece of rebar through there and then you can twist it out. There's an idea, yeah. Yep, and clay, and your clay soil over there, Ben, it might be hard, but sand soil, it's really easy. Yeah, it's a big job. So there's a lot of different technologies for measuring soil, and there's a few companies now offering services, CropMetric comes to mind, where they'll install the technology in and then give you a weekly recommendation. Um, so we see, I think there's four different companies that have equipment in some of our sites that are sending us weekly recommendations. Um, I think that's one way for growers to get started if you don't know otherwise, uh, if you don't want to. If you're at the low dollar end and you're raising multiple different crops, it's pretty expensive to be, um, you know, some of these are two, three thousand dollars per year per site. It's pretty expensive to do that if you have five or six different crops that you're worrying uh, that you're uh, managing, or if your plantings are, um, you know, everywhere from the middle of May till the middle of, of, of June, you may have three or four different um, needs for moisture sensors. So I think there's real value to some kinds of low cost systems that a producer can monitor by themselves, whether it's the PVC things that you could build for a couple bucks that, uh, 
Ron was showing or whether it's um, some of the, the rometer vacuum tubes or the, um, or the um, gypsum blocks um, that are there. Uh, I think the big thing I see with growers is after they've used them a few years, they either give up on them and say, I've learned what I could from that. And that's probably about half the growers. And the other half end up depending on them quite a bit. They usually have like a sentinel plot, a plot that's ahead of the other things that they put this technology into and they make decisions on and it's sort of the, the technology tells them when things are going good or when things are going bad. And it's surprising, I'll have uh, producers that we worked with three or four years ago that will call me and say, hey, I need to replace this part. Or what does it mean when I get a off the chart number? So they've used that for three years and took the information in and made decisions on it to the point that they're willing to um, renew it or replace it uh, as it comes forward. It's a way of getting more information about your crop. Yeah, that's helpful to hear. That was gonna be my follow up just about like, at what point is it worth investing in some of these more expensive systems? A lot of the growers we work with are smaller growers who are doing just as you said, kind of well, the, the, planting every week through June at least. And yeah. The least expensive system, of course, is just sticking your hand in the soil and figuring out what that is. But my experience there is that you're only going down four or five inches. And that's not deep enough. So you at least need to get a soil probe and, and stick a soil probe down through there and then see what the moisture is, the length of that soil probe. I, I do think we need to mention too that it takes a little bit of time from your application time, uh, timing when you end your application till the point that the water has um, moved, uh, moved down to the point that the soil will hang on to it. So you will get a different reading the an hour after you've done your finished irrigation than you will 10 or 12 hours. For most of our field scale things, we wanna test 12 hours afterwards. And we, we try to do that very consistently so that 12 hours after the application went out over that area, we believe that all the free water, the water that's between the uh, soil particles has moved down and that it's created that wetted front that we'll be able to see. And it's, it's done a, a tremendous job at helping show producers when they're overwatering because you're pushing water below the root system. That's a waste of both water and energy and also potentially fertilizer. Natalie, can I follow up with that, with the question that I prepared? Because I think it, it fits a little bit. This, this idea of knowing when to stop, uh, basically, um, when it comes to something like nutrient delivery or chemigation, um, I understand that it is important um, to know how long it takes to fill your system, apply, and, and then um, basically flush uh, the systems. Um, can, can, let's start with Ron. Can you talk a little bit about how, that, how you would approach that um, from a drip irrigation standpoint? Uh, yeah. Um, what you need to do is figure out how long you're going to run your system and break it into thirds. And so you're going to, the first third, pretty much you're going to charge your system. And depending on the size, it could take several minutes uh, to charge that system. Because uh, you could be, you know, have a system that, that requires a couple hundred gallons just to fill the tubes. Uh, and then the, the middle third is when you inject your product, uh, whether it's a, a pesticide or a fertilizer. And then the final third is when you're moving that product through the, the soil profile and then flushing it out of the system because you don't want any left in the system. And so it's just a matter of timing uh, and knowing how long it takes things to move through your system. Um, 
and that that is just a matter of figuring out basically what you have with a drip tube or a drip tape is a, a, a cylinder you know a, a long cylinder and so you have to figure out the volume of that cylinder uh, using the, the standard uh, volume of the cylinder calculation of pi r squared times the length of the cylinder and then that will tell you the volume so it tells you how many gallons are in that system or in that length and then you look at the flow rate of the amount going through the, the openings and then just whether it's 0.25 gallon a minute which is the one of the more, most popular ones um, and then if it's a 600 foot long system at a 5 8 inch tape 600 feet long which is the maximum you want to go with a 5 8 inch diameter uh, then there's what I do. I figured, actually figured it out. Uh, there are basically nine and a half gallons in that 600 foot of five inch tape. And if you have a 0.25 gallons a minute, it takes you a little over six minutes and some seconds to empty that from beginning to end. And so you have to keep all those calculations in mind. Now, if you change diameter, uh, that, that changes. Um, so, but, but you can flush the system out. Linden's system. If he's putting something on, a, a chemigating on a product, he doesn't have the luxury of flushing it out because you're always putting, as the center pivot moves around, you're putting it all on. So, Lyndon, you, you need to address that. Yeah, it's a, a little bit different. It's more like a crop sprayer as far as a function. Um, we're going to inject into a flow of water into the, into the pipe, into the center pivot or the traveler, and then as it moves across the field, it's going to do the application. So we have to have a consistent injection amount. Um, most of the time when we calibrate, we're gonna figure out how many hours it's gonna to take to put on a given amount. So let's say we're gonna put on um, a half an inch of water and we're gonna put enough nitrogen with it to, um, to get 30 pounds of nitrogen. Um, so we figure out how long that pivot takes to put a half an inch on that given area. So let's say it takes 48 hours to put a half an inch of water on that whole um, 160 acres or 142 acres that are irrigated out of 160 acres. And then we adjust our injection pump so that um, I'm getting roughly 10 gallons per minute for the amount of time that it takes to cover each acre. And then the injection pump's running the whole time that that half inch application's there. We would wanna uh, fill the pipe with clean water before we started. Um, so that we don't get a burst of nitrogen in case the nitrogen pumps on before the others. And then we'd want to flush for a half an hour, an hour after we're done irrigating, just to push all the nitrogen out of the pipe. But it's uh, 20 years ago when we talked to people with center pivot irrigation, less than one in 10 were putting any kind of nitrogen or chemical through their pivot. Now we're probably up to somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% of producers are putting it up. And, uh, putting something through the pivot, the chemigation or fertigation. Um, and when I look at the vegetable producers, they lead the way. Almost all vegetable production is using some type of either fertigation or chemigation in the process. All right, so we are past noon. Um, there was, there was one, one question you haven't asked that I think is an important. Yeah, uh, I think it's true. And this yeah. audience question is specific. So let's say, like, folks in the audience, this is a good time to start. Like if you've got questions, put them in um, the Q&A box or vote for, for questions that you like. And then we'll just ask this final question as you kind of think of questions. So a lot of the farms that I work with have like one person who is the irrigation guy. 
and no one else knows anything about irrigation. Um, and so I was curious just to get your perspective on, like everyone should probably know a little bit about irrigation. Say that person goes away for the weekend and something breaks. What are like three things or a couple key things that everyone should know about maintaining um, and fixing irrigation equipment? That, that goes along with the, the question I was asking about, something about phone numbers. What phone numbers do you want to have? Uh, for that? And number one, you want a phone number of your well person and you want a phone number of the, the person who designed your system, whether it's an overhead or, or a drip system, because invariably that well, something's going to happen to that well, and you're going to the pump or on the well or something, and you don't want to be without water, because the reason you're watering is because you need water, and you don't want to be too long without that water. So those are two numbers you need right away. Lyndon, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, yeah, we're... we're uh... I agree with everything Ron's saying. When when you start looking at center pivot and travel irrigation, you always have the potential of running over something. I guess if you plant the tube or put the tube right on the ground, it's not going to run over it. But center pivot, a lot of damage is done um, when things collide, two center pivots together, or somebody leaves the the um, field worker's bus in the way and it gets ran over, those types of things. So we do a lot of education around irrigation education um, for the actual people running those. Um, everything from safety on um, 480 electric that runs on runs them to um, how to convey information so that if somebody has to shut the system down, they know how to do it. And if somebody had to start uh, the system, they know where to find the notes are on um, where things are at. Um, just recently, I was involved in a discussion of two pivots that ran into each other and they were neighbors. And it was a, a gentleman spraying crops, was moving one of them and he just had no idea that if he left that moving that it would run into the neighbors. And so you, you think about what would you need to know to be able to prevent the disasters from happening. If both of those guys had rode on the inside of the electrical box where you start the system, this system can collide with the neighbors at least the third party person running the pivot out of the way of the sprayer would know not to turn it on. So it's, I think it's a good, a good thing um, to have good communications and leave some notes that are there uh, for people. Um, spend some time drafting what you have to do at the beginning of the season, what you have to do to be able to make a, uh, an application and what you have to do to be able to get the season, the equipment ready for the winter. Um, put those in the door of each of the systems or uh, somewhere in the office where somebody can find them. And if if you're not around, if you go to Hawaii for the rest of the summer, at least the hired hand has a, a chance at figuring out uh, what to do next. So I want to summarize uh, some of those things. Three things you might want to know. It sounds like it's up to your irrigation guy to give you the right numbers and to leave you the trail of breadcrumbs. Um, as Natalie put it, the irrigation guy being the one person on the farm that seems to know all about that stuff. Uh, and if they're gone, you're pretty much stranded. So uh, I guess pester that person um, to get you what you need. And, and I think that that's probably the best thing to do in terms of having somebody that is in charge of irrigation, but not all operations are large enough that that person can do just that. Because my experience on smaller operations is that once harvest time comes, irrigation takes a back seat. Uh, because they're so so focused on harvesting and packing and moving things out the door and getting money and making money, the irrigation kind of is second after that. 
Yeah, I think that's definitely right. And um, like you said, I think very few farms actually have someone whose entire job is irrigation. They're like uh, the person I, I, who yeah. drives the tractor <laughs> and does the irrigation. I, I have a few larger ones that they have somebody that just travels around for irrigation. And we have some potato farms in Michigan that, you know, they're large enough that somebody just goes from center pivot to center pivot. Yeah, it probably depends on the problem. I, I visited a farm a few weeks ago, and as we drove by the sand filters, one of them was just hemorrhaging water. And so he called his welder, uh, not his irrigation guy, to come and just look at the metal, figure out where it was leaking, and just patch it. So in that case, it wasn't the irrigation guy at all. It's just the guy who welds stuff. We do have one audience question. Um, this is kind of going back to specific sensors. Uh, but the question is, do gypsum, center, do gypsum sensors have any telemetry? I don't know. I don't work with gypsum sensors that much. Um, I, I think I'd like clarification on telemetry. Is that referring to having many sensors distributed and then wireless reporting to like a base station? That's what I'm taking that as, but I'm not sure. That, that's what I understand. And I would think that you could do that. You know, the, a lot of other systems, the, the Centex system I showed, they offer one that does that, that you can get to an app on your phone and you can actually control the irrigation from your phone uh, if you want to. And I would assume that some of those also have that. Lyndon, I see you're unmuted. Well, there's several systems now that the data loggers will put the data up um, on a website for you to pull off. There's a, a young professor at MSU that's working on a system that will use cloud-based technology uh, to greatly reduce the cost. All of these are going to give you a GPS location of where that data logger is and you're going to feed in um, the, the position within the field. And we spend quite a bit of time looking at soil maps and cropping rotations and things to figure out where to put those. Um, so yes, as you spend more money, we, yes, we know where the telemetry is um, and um, we get there. On the lower end of the scale, no, you, you have something that's as simple as a sensor on the end of a tube or a sensor that's buried in the ground and you take a reading from it and that's, you're, you're right in the field with it and it really doesn't um, record any data at the lowest end. And those, we have systems that people can get started with a reader for, oh, under 200 uh, for the reader and then um, 40, 50 dollars per sensor. And then from there, it goes all the way up. There are some people paying as much as three to $5,000 for sensors um, to put in fields in a single site and the recommendations that come along with them. Some huge variability there. Yeah. Can you say anything about, like, what are you getting if you're paying $200 per sensor versus $3,000 per sensor? Like, what, how much of a difference really is there in the data you're getting? Or is it more like... The durability of those sensors? If it's all done right, the data is the same data. It's just how much you get of it. For the two, three hundred dollars, I'm just getting a handheld sensor, much like an ohms meter that Ron was showing you. And I'm going to read the, the ohms or the uh, reading of um, how easy the electricity or how much vacuum um, is happening at that time. I'm gonna establish a threshold on a piece of paper or inside the box that says, I'm gonna irrigate when that number exceeds this. And um, so it's a very hands-on technology, much like if you took a uh, soil auger and augered uh, earth from the center of the uh, dirt from the center of the root ball 
and put it in your hands and said, this is wet or this is dry. I'm going to make a decision. As you spend more money, you're going to, um, you're going to get a third person's part at the upper end. You're getting a, a professional to look at your data and make a recommendation. Um, and you're going to get far more data. A lot of these systems will have a sensor every three or four inches as it goes down. Um, the newest systems that people are looking at are going to bring you data from maybe 12 points in the field and group it all together and put it on your site. And those are going to be in that upper range too. Uh, so there's more data and more uh, information available to help you make the decision. And, and then in some drip systems, you can actually at the really upper end is that you can get it to turn itself on and off automatically. But you do sacrifice something there because that doesn't mean you can never step that step in the field from the time you install the system until you harvest things. You still need to go and check on things. And so that in some ways gives you a false sense of security. Yeah, nothing just, automatically fixes all the leaks. Yeah, yeah. And we don't want to be like the local bank that's watering the yard every, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, uh, every time it rains, it seems like the local bank's uh, uh, <laughs> irrigation system is watering the edge of the road. And, and uh, you, you look at it and you say, anybody controlling that thing, anybody with any sense would not have it running today. Well, the truth is somebody made a decision that on Tuesday mornings, Thursday mornings, and, and uh, Saturday mornings, this is going to run for two hours. Um, even our lawn systems, we have sensors now that take a rain gauge, and if we get, if we had more than a half an inch, it turns the system off. Um, so as we get better technology, we get better uh, ways of dealing with it. We got some more uh, questions coming in the Q and A. Um, one of them, I'll just say it's more of a comment. Uh, Liz Maynard from Purdue is on the on the call today, and she just offered up that any sensor that does have an electrical signal could be hooked up to telemetry. So it seems like the option's open there. Um, and then the other question that just came in was, what steps should be done for safety concerns when you have to use pond water? One of you had alluded to that early on. Uh, well, the safety would be if you're using it overhead on something that would then go into the fresh market. Uh, beans, uh, carrots. You know, there, there are some things you would not drip irrigate because of the way that they're planted. Um, sweet corn generally isn't drip irrigated, although you can. Uh, carrots aren't, uh, snap beans aren't. And so if you're overhead irrigating those and they go directly into the fresh market, then that is a concern um, because your water source is pretty critical from that standpoint. So we see a lot of producers that are trying to meet the gap requirements or uh, wherever they're selling their product to, um, whether it's a major chain store, they may have even um, tighter restrictions on or uh, rules as far as what you need to meet. Um, so when we go to overhead irrigation and we're using um, water that, that may have E. coli and um, almost all of our surface water has uh, by mid-season has some E. coli in it, um, I don't know, without getting rid of all the geese and all of the soil contact. I don't know how you can avoid that. Um, so there's a criteria on um, you know, within the graft requirements. Um, Phil Toko does an excellent job and has on his website um, a number of fact sheets that talk about meeting those gap requirements when you're using surface water. In some cases, we've had to chlorinate the water that we're irrigating with. That ends up being a lot of chlorine, uh, either um, liquid or, or sometimes gas, which is really dangerous, but 
um, if we're looking at like uh, cooling water for cucumber production or those types of things, sometimes they treat the water, surface water to bring it, the E. coli number down. Um, but in general, if, if you're a new grower, take that into consideration. Um, if you're planning on growing vegetables and using the water for direct contract, uh, cooling or uh, irrigation a couple days before uh, harvest, um, think real hard about whether you want to do that or if you want to use groundwater as the option. Yeah, I'll just add that you guys are, are you guys hit it pretty good, but the main concern is crops that are eaten raw. Um, so that's, that's really what it's coming down to. And this question that was asked is actually uh, something we were going to have an entire podcast on just that, only that with the Food Safety Modernization Act and gaps and everything like that, because it is a pretty big question. There's a lot that comes into it about water testing frequency and what E. coli counts mean, um, how to calculate Olympic means and weird stuff like that. Uh, it's a pretty big question. Uh, and so as, as far as fresh market vegetables go and ed edible vegetable, raw edible vegetables go, uh, groundwater is really the safest bet. Um, and it, work, it, it pairs well with a lot of vegetable production. Uh, so if you've got the option, go with it. One water source we haven't discussed, and that is municipal water sources. Now, Lyndon probably wouldn't use it for his larger overhead systems because it would be way too expensive. But there may be some people, uh, smaller producers that are on a municipal source. You have to be careful there because lots of times they will raise the pH of that up to where if you continually use it, you're going to gradually raise the pH of your soil. Uh, to the point where you could run into some difficulties. Uh, so just be aware of that and be cautious. If you can get a well, if you dig your own well, that's probably the best thing. And if we're going to talk about municipal water, uh, both states I deal with have requirements that if you're using a public water supply, that you use a restricted, reduced pressure zone valve, an RPZ valve. And in some cases, that valve is uh, cost prohibitive uh, for our uh, what we're working on. Um, we've ran into it quite a bit as we have um, oh, church gardens and some of the things that have sprung up here since the COVID-19. And people say, well, we're just going to run water from the church out to water the garden. There's uh, some potential to um, contaminate the well for the church. And when we're working on a well, the municipal water line, um, there's potential to um, hurt uh, harm people that are using that municipal water so that re they have that requirement of the reduced pressure zone valve. Um, for everybody else that's pumping water from a lake, river, or stream, or a well that only serves irrigation, uh, we use a chemigation valve, which is an air relief system uh, that provides the same type of backup, um, backflow protection um, in case the system shuts down with contaminated water in it so that we don't ruin the water supply. Glad you mentioned that, Lyndon. I, I kind of, well, I wanted to ask that, but I was worried we were running out of time. So thanks for touching on that. I was going to say that could be a whole episode in the future about things to think about when you're working with municipal water sources and urban farms. So we will take that into consideration for the future. Um, and we've just got a couple minutes left. So I think we can kind of go through the wrap up information um, and then see if anyone has a pressing question, we might be able to get to it at the end. Um, but thank you very much, um, both Ron and Lyndon, for joining us. We really appreciate your time and insight on this. Um, ben, do you want to talk about what's coming up for next week? Yeah, next week, 
we're going to be talking about cover crops for the late summer and fall. And you can tune into that at the same place at the same time. Uh, if you if you have some questions you want to submit, uh, you can email it to greatlakesvegwg at gmail.com. Um, so we've already gone through the, the Q&A, so I, I feel comfortable um, signing off after after this. So I just want to mention that the production is supported by the North Central IPM Center, and we didn't get any special uh, fake sponsors this week. No one was creative <laughs> enough, <laughs> but maybe next week. Uh, so once again, thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a safe rest of the week and good weekend as well.